Please join me in our prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading for this morning is from the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him victory. The Lord has made known his victory. He has revealed his vindication in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and all those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Acts 10, as Sarah just told the children. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called, He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send your men to Joppa, for a certain Simon who is called Peter, he is lodging with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. And when the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him, and after telling them everything, he sent them off to Joppa. And off they went. They went to Joppa, and they find Peter, and they spend some time with Peter. And also during this time, Peter has had uh, also a strange dream. And Peter agrees to go with uh, these people that Cornelius has sent to meet Cornelius and his family. And so after an evening of hospitality and sharing uh, with one another, they get up and they head back to find Cornelius. And this is how the ending of Acts chapter 10 ends. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptism for these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they invited him to stay for several days. So I hope you will go back sometime today or this week and read all of 
uh, chapter 10 in the book of Acts. Uh, it's a very uh, transformative reading in our lives and in the life of the church. But it made me think about uh, the season of the church. We are this today, this Sunday is the sixth Sunday of Easter. And I have always found it kind of interesting how we as the church treat those two celebratory, celebratory seasons, Christmas and Easter. The Christmas season seems to kind of last forever. It starts sometime around the end of the back to school sales and it lasts all the way through maybe the middle of January when we reluctantly put away those Christmas decorations. But Easter, not so much. There's Lent, and then there's Holy Week, and then by Monday, all the Easter decorations are usually put away and packed up. It's done. It's over. But the Easter season is still here. It's still with us today. We even have one more Sunday left. That's next Sunday before we get to Pentecost. But today, it's still the season of Easter, a season for the church that calls us to remember and reflect on what it means to live into a resurrected life. It is time to reflect and discern what it means to be a people who were set free by Jesus' death and given great hope by his resurrection. What does the resurrection mean to us? What does it mean to the world? How do we play a part in living a life of those who believe in Jesus? These are questions that we should be asking ourselves in this season of Easter. It can be difficult to do. Easter really seems a long time ago. We want to think about graduation and maybe summer vacation. At least that's what I like to think about. But no, as people of faith, we must pause and contemplate this resurrected life and what it means to be God's people in it. Each of us has a role to play in God's grand plan for God's created. It's playing out right here in front of us as we speak. But the mystery is what is my role? What role do each of us play in that? So if you're struggling with that a bit today, and maybe you're not, but I sometimes struggle with that, it's helpful for me to look back into our biblical witness and look for other people who may have struggled with those same questions. That's why I love the story of Cornelius. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. Now, in most commentaries that you'll read or books that you'll read about Acts, and especially about Acts 10, they kind of tend to focus on Peter. For it's Peter who encounters Cornelius and opens the gates for the church to spread out to Jesus' followers for Gentiles, a true turning point in the early church that pro propelled this kind of small, insignificant Jewish sect into a faith community that welcomed all. We know a lot about Peter. He was the disciple that denied Jesus three times. But he was also the disciple who Jesus called the rock because the church would be built on his shoulders. We have quotes, we have letters from Peter, we have writings. But today I want to focus on Cornelius and see what we can maybe learn about him 
and the role that he played in this important historical event of our faith. Our passage at first glance might not appear to provide a lot of details, but if we take just a few moments and look at it, I think we can glean quite a lot about this man named Cornelius. First of all, his name, Cornelius, it's a Latin name. It's not Jewish or Greek. Um, Yeah, there are people that study that kind of thing, and they look at names. So we can strongly assume because his name is Latin that he is from Italy or from Rome. Second, we're told that he is a Roman soldier. So by that, we know that he's at least five foot eight tall. That's the height requirement to be a Roman soldier. And not only is he just a soldier, he's a centurion and probably a fairly high-ranking one. This tells us that he was most likely over 30 years old because it took 12 to 16 years of military service to be able to get to that rank. And from his being a centurion, we know that Cornelius was an educated man. He would have had to have shown administrative skills along with military and combat leadership. Now, there were 60 grades or levels of rank within the office of centurion. To be of the lowest rank meant that you were responsible for a century, for a hundred men. The highest ranking centurion was the leader of a cohort, and that would be about five or six hundred men and quite a sizable administrative staff. So our scripture reading today says that Cornelius was the leader of the Italian cohort. This means that he would have been a very high-ranking centurion, and his troops would have been mostly Roman and Italian. I think this reading leads us to support that kind of conjecture in two ways. First, Cornelius had the authority to dispatch a soldier on an obvious personal errand. A low-ranking centurion would have not had that authority. And second, Cornelius has his family with him, which was a privilege that was only granted to the upper ranks. Cornelius was stationed in Caesarea, a coastal city about 50 miles northeast of Jerusalem, northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, Caesarea was, a sea, uh, was the seat of the Roman governor in Palestine and Syria, and this would have been where the Roman governor's headquarters would have been. It's quite possible that Cornelius was responsible even for the Roman governor's security. Uh, we re- need to remember that Rome had conquered these territories of the New Testament about 60 years before the birth of Jesus. And from that time on, the Jews increasingly um, ceased to have their freedoms and independence as a nation, and they were ruled by people that Rome chose, not by people that they chose. The Jews never really accepted this oversight or even of being part of the Roman Empire. So from time to time, they would resist their Roman authority and rebel. For this reason, Rome had constantly kept military troops in and around this Jewish nation to keep things from breaking into open warfare. So due to this constant tension between conqueror and subject, the Jews had a negative view toward their Roman oppressors, and for the Roman troops, their feeling was about the same. The Romans thought that they were a superior civilization. They believed that they ruled the world because they alone were wise and powerful. They viewed most other people in their cultures as being inferior. 
Sound familiar? Most Roman soldiers and their officers shared this contempt for the people that they conquered. Though officially prohibited, it was not uncommon for Roman troops to oppress by force the people that they conquered and ruled over. Of course, there were cases where Roman soldiers were guilty of assault and robbery and much worse. And their officers were probably doing the same, but even if they weren't, they would turn a blind eye to these misdeeds. This was just an indication of their arrogance and their total disregard for the people that they ruled over. So what an amazing contrast we find in Cornelius. Cornelius did not display such prejudices. It is evident that he did not look down upon the Jewish people. Rather than being contemptuous of the Jewish race and their customs, he showed them courtesy and respect. He demonstrated this in many ways. However, his lack of arrogance and prejudice is most clearly apparent in his worshiping of God. A quick study of the scriptures shows us that Cornelius expressed his faith in four ways. He actively engaged God through personal and corporate worship. He held God in reverence and power. He looked after others with generosity. And he spent time in prayer, discerning God's will for his life and for his family. Cornelius was a believer, and he worshiped God the, God, the same God that the Jews worshipped. He abandoned the gods of Rome and submitted himself to the one true God. I think it's hard for us today to totally appreciate this stance that Cornelius has taken. Most Romans believed in many gods and goddesses. Serving and appeasing these multiple gods was a major element of the Roman lifestyle. It was also an obsession with the Roman military. To not honor the gods, especially the god of war, Mars, was tantamount to treason. If Mars and the other gods were not honored, it could mean defeat in battle. Anywhere and everywhere the Roman army went, they took portable pagan shrines with them and worshipped and sacrificed before them. The army's religious rituals were very extensive. And whom do you suppose were responsible to ensure that those rituals were practiced by their troops and observed to their fullest? It was supposed to be the centurion. But Cornelius rejected that culture. He courageously bucked the system around him and renounced that paganism and accept the true faith of God. Now that you know a little bit more about Cornelius and maybe understand how important his actions were, he not only opened up the gospel message to his larger and extended family, but we can assume that Cornelius would one day return to Rome to his home and continue that evangelism for the kingdom of God. Now you might be saying to yourself about now, wow, that's a really cool story. And that's all well and good, but I'm no Roman soldier. I don't have a large family. I don't have that kind of influence. Well, I'm going to tell you another story. A story about your own community. It's part of who we are as a community in Mount Pleasant. 
32 years ago in September, Hurricane Hugo swept across Mount Pleasant and the surrounding area, devastating what locals call the area east of the Cooper. There was destruction on a scale no one could imagine. Homes were destroyed, businesses destroyed. It was hard to find a place, a habitable place to live. The basic needs of life, food, clothing, shelter, were in disarray and the systems to deliver those to the population disrupted. The destruction was so widespread that in the beginning it was even difficult for rescue workers to get into the area to help out. But out of that destruction, out of that other chaos and confusion, rose a small group of people that began to help. It started at Christ Our King Parish Church And within a week after the hurricane, they opened a relief center. Other area churches in East Cooper joined in, including Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church, one of the founding churches of that organization. And outside help began to arrive. By the end of the month, that relief center had moved from Christ Our King's campus to a larger facility and was beginning to feed and serve over 400 people a day. Volunteers from all over the country and locally poured in to that relief center to help. Now what I've described to you is the birth of ECHO, East Cooper Community Outreach, which is still a vital part of our community today. An outreach program that our church supports financially and with countless hours of volunteers. ECHO's work today has moved beyond the destructive power of a hurricane and concentrates its efforts on the destructive power of poverty, food disparity, and healthcare disparity for the residents east of the Cooper. If you read that story, if you've been over to Echo and heard the stories of the people and the volunteers that are there, you will see lots of Corneliuses. Not people proclaiming their own superiority over others, not people claiming that they have a position or intelligence that they can lord over others, but people sensing the movement of the Holy Spirit, people led by that Spirit, seeing a need and willing to give of their time and talent to further the kingdom of God by looking after each other, by looking after our neighbors, by welcoming the stranger, by loving each other. In telling this story, I think of many of you who have told me about the many agencies that this church participates and partners with. I see in each of you, Cornelius, the people who make organizations like this church, ECHO, Habitat for Humanity, East Cooper Meals on Wheels, the Florence Crittenden Home, the Low Country Food Bank, the Hope House, Metanoia, 180 Place, The Red Cross, ESOL, Ronald McDonald House, Wynwood Farms, and internationally in Nicaragua, we have Amos in the Nuevo Vida Clinic, in Kenya, Daystar and KDS, in Honduras, LAM, Habitat for Humanity, Trinidad to Copan Building, Honduras Medical, and Haiti Outreach Ministries, and many, many more. The list could literally go on for hours. Each of you has a ministry 
that is important to you and it is important to God. Keep it going, my friends. Use Cornelius as your example as an earthly leader who not only practiced his faith as a believer, but lived his faith every day. Even in this time of COVID, there is much work to be done. Out of chaos, oppression, destruction can come good. There can be rebirth, renewal, restoration. God is doing a new thing every day, at every moment, all around us, all the time. We must look and listen for where God is at work, and we must go there whether that is around the world or right here in our neighborhood. We need to be like Cornelius and follow our hearts to places God is calling us to be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.